0: Ladies and gentlemen, I am so fortunate and proud and honored to have with me today a legendary, legendary guitarist, legendary musician and a wonderful, wonderful person in the name of Mr. Pat Martino.
1: please Thank you so much. Such a pleasure.
0: Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I've been, I've been, um, I've been dying to get this, um, I hate to say interviews because they always turn more into a conversation, so uh, I've been waiting for this conversation for a long time. First, I want to ask, are you from South Philadelphia? Originally from South Philly, yeah?
1: Yeah, originally. um, Who makes the best (laughs) cheesesteaks, pastors, you know? Uh, That's that's difficult for me to make a decision over either of the two. Right. (laughs) Right. Because either of the two, both of them have plans. Okay, okay. (laughs) So I, I don't want to... I I don't want to get, uh, <laughs> I don't want to take a chance. Yeah, I want, to, I want to take a chance because uh, it's a long-standing
0: argument from people that live in Philadelphia who makes the best cheese. Sure. And um, excuse <coughs> me, sorry. In in 1980, uh, you had surgery to prepare, yes. have um, an aneurysm that almost you know it almost you know took your life. It was almost fatal.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, to what do you attribute your full recovery, and rise back
1: to the forefront of death. Willpower. Willpower. A number of things, but I think uh, primarily willpower,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which I think is innate, subliminal. You don't even know that that's taking place. Mm-hmm. I, I suffered, what brought the aneurysm about was AGM, which is arterial, um, I forget the full, full name for it, I think uh, arterial, arterial venous, venous alfer- malformation. 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 Yeah, and and I was born with that problem, and I suffered misdiagnosis of it for decades hmm. until finally a it research climax. Hmm. Finally, the, uh, the the seizures that were taking place and the, the, the finality that brought me to two hours. Um, I was given two hours to live hmm. to make a decision for neurosurgery. And I decided, to, since it took place in California, the CAT scan, the first CAT scan I ever had, I uh, decided to, to fly back to the States, uh, back to the East Coast. Primarily because mom and dad were here, I have no brothers or sisters. And I, I thought it would really be deadly if I remained and had it done in, in, on the West Coast of, this, of access and their availability to be present. So I took a chance and um, I flew back here to Philadelphia, and right from the airport, from the International Airport, I went straight to Pennsylvania Hospital, had the operation done. And there were two of them. The first was uh, produced a coma for 19 hours, and the second uh, operation was successful. So uh, after that, I had uh, total amnesia and forgot about everything, and it was like wiping the blackboard clean, just wiped the slate totally clean. And it was, in a way, I'll be honest with you, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful change, primarily because there was nothing to have to confront uh, myself with in terms of competitive uh, issues to try to compete with my past, since I didn't even know who the guitar player was. Mm. And there were so many people that were doing the best they could to remind me of what I was. valuable, on their in their opinion, what I was valuable for. I think human beings are valuable for their love of life, that's my honest opinion. And that's what I really learned after the, after the operation, during recovery. It became more important to enjoy life than to achieve accomplishment and be notified, be lifted and praised for the accomplishment that's what I learned most of all valuable. And I think willpower to be able to attain the enjoyment of life itself is essential. It's really essential. Because I think, you know, I, I remember times when performance itself was very uh, elusive in terms of its own success. I remember times when um, I would be performing, and this is after the operations, after the um, after restarting professional performance again. I remember performances when I thought the performance was great. And someone at the, at the bar, in, in the, uh, there was used to be a club in New York City called The Bottom Line. And I started playing there again in 1987, 1988. And I remember a guy at the bar after we came off stage, it was, uh, we were co-billing, it was me and Stanley Clark. Huh. Stanley had a group there, and a trio there with Lenny White and I forget who else was in, the, in, the, in that particular group. Um, I don't remember the other player was. But anyway, I finished my set and I came down to the bar and I thought it was a great, great set. My, I was totally up from the, the performance, you know. But somebody at the bar said, uh, that was pretty good, he said, you know. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, I said, thanks, thanks a lot. And he said, but I think you should listen to... Uh, there's a guitar player that I think you ought to listen to, his name's Pat Azara, mm. And he recorded some albums with Willis Jackson way back then. Mm. Of course, that is my legal name, Pat Azara. Right. And I, was, I did those records with Willis mm. and the Jack McDuff. Right. A lot of players in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> but amazing. I didn't say a word to him. There were other times when I thought it was lame. My I thought my, my ability was insufficient. It, I wasn't pleased. I wasn't fulfilled. And I would come down off the step off the off the stage and someone would say would be completely flabbergasted wow. about the whole thing and say, Wow man, that was just incredible, incredible, incredible. So due to experience of that nature, I decided no longer to fall prey to the elusive nature of success
3: mm-hmm.
1: in any of the things that I I wanted to attain. Mm-hmm. And I saw it as an illusion, and it came down to the enjoyment of the moment and not to uh, expect anything of it other than what it is, mm-hmm. and that to me was much more important. So, so, um, not,
0: not needing validation for life. Exactly. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it's a blessing. So, did did you, since you felt that way about the second performance that you had spoken, did you did you feel like there was a difference because of what you had gone through, or was it just like this was a bad night in your eyes as far as your
1: performance was? Closer to this is a bad night in my eyes, mm-hmm. but even more than that, closer to this was a uh, an odd moment. Mm-hmm. Not even a bad life. One of the, the main things that I think really essentially defined a difference in my life after the experience of the operations and recovery was the reduction of complexity to simplicity. Mm. It became so important to focus myself on the moment from moment to moment. You know how, how uh, Roland Kirk, Roshan, mm. uh, wrote the composition, moment to moment. Yeah. And that's what he was talking about. That's what he was saying. And I think Trane was saying the same thing when when he uh, titled A Love Supreme. Mm -hmm. It comes to the moment and the simplicity of now. How enjoyable life can be when you begin to focus on what is. Since the past evaporates and it doesn't really exist. and, And the future hasn't come yet, so why worry about it? Right and just deal with now and, and, uh, and simplistically do the best you can under any circumstances. When it comes to any kind of critique coming from other individuals, uh, professional or otherwise, um, that really has nothing to do with what was done mm-hmm. and what you felt in the ecstasy of doing it from the bottom of your heart and soul. So you're, you're,
0: you, know, you feel as though you've become more, uh, more spiritual? It's, you
1: know, it's I don't bad. know whether it's, I can say I've become more spiritual. I think uh, spirituality is something that's innate and born within within quite a number of us. Oh, so hmm. many uh, individuals in, in so many different directions in different cultures <coughs> <coughs> uh, are all subject to spiritual um, definition of it. You know, it's how we define what comes before us, and, and our intentions have a great deal to do with spirituality, in terms of how compassionate we can be, and how graceful we are about, and how humble we can be about things. So that, in a sense, is spirituality, but at the same time, it's very practical in the sense of the enjoyment of living. Mm-hmm. It's like when you walk out the front door, if if your neighbor, um, let's say is an older individual, an adult, you're young, much younger, and and this adult needs some needs some assistance in something. And you have I just happened to walk out the door, and here you see this older person needing some assistance. The feeling in in being there at that time, at that very moment, and offering your assistance is so rewarding in itself And I can't say that that was a spiritual reason that you did it. Mm-hmm. I I think it has a great deal to do with your just with your intuition.
0: Right, and and you know because I, I find myself because I, I work in the healthcare so um, I work with a lot of I, I like to say our more established citizens. Mhm. And um, it's it's almost a reflex for me. It's not even a thought. I mean, sure. When if, if somebody needs some help, and and I do that in my everyday life. If someone needs help, I help. Them. Sure. You know, and you know. Further on down the line, I feel you know, as far as you know, uh, my spirituality goes, it'll be rewarded later. But I don't look for anything now. I mean, sure. you know, come on. I mean, this is something. This is why I'm honored sure. is to do things like that. So that's that's how I feel. So well,
1: I, I think you enjoy. I think you enjoy it. I know I do. Yeah. And and that comes down to a personal, uh, you know, intuition on your own behalf and you based upon your own intention mm-hmm. about how to enjoy living. Mm-hmm. You know. And it comes down to that, and, and the access to such things is of this nature do not require the attainment of, let's say, capitalistic wealth. So, I mean, there, there's a freedom that comes from this that is extremely rewarding. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, uh, you remain to be free in terms of many things in life at, at a very high level of, of precision. Mm-hmm. That's so important. I think jazz has really helped me with that, primarily because I've redefined a lot of things on the basis of jazz, what I've learned from jazz. Mm -hmm. And the word itself, uh, it's been quite some time since that, it it has transcended an idiomatic type of music. Mm -hmm. It's no longer music anymore. Jazz, to me, is closer a definition for spontaneity imagination. Mm -hmm. These are things that are closer to the meaning of what jazz represents Mm -hmm. than a type of music that can be heard on a specific radio station. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is something that comes down to the transition of one intention to, through experience, through decades of experience, for an individual to reach um, consciousness of another form of the same application Mm -hmm. and how that can be so much more rewarding. And at the same time, what initially was essentially important for that same person Mm -hmm. to to, um, achieve dexterity, uh, to achieve um, the ability, the technical ability uh, virtuosically,
3: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, that becomes second nature to that same person. Mm-hmm. And it becomes second to the ability to uh, be aware of a greater level mm-hmm. of consciousness. Again, back to um, training, a Love Supreme, which mm-hmm. had nothing to do with intervals, scales, right. chord forms, right. and radio stations. Right. So and now- Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so these are things that I think um, are missing in, in a great number of um, facets of the application of education where where kids who are studying music uh, are taught how to transcribe uh, solos of different instrumentalists in accordance with the instrument that they choose as studying. And they fail to see Quite a number of facets that uh, bring their decision in terms of that transcription less authentic. They lose authenticity due to the fact, for instance, take for instance Paul Chambers, mm. since I brought up train, yeah. let's talk about Paul Chambers. I did a session with Richard Groove Holmes uh, in the 70s and on the session was Teddy Edwards was on the session. Um, Paul Chambers was on the session. I think Idris Mohammed was on the session as well. Nonetheless, Paul had just come from Russia, some part of Russia, and he had his his upright in a hard-shelled case, right from the airport, from from LaGuardia or from JFK, I'm not quite sure. And it was ice-cold outside, it was in January. And when we did this session at Rudy Van Gelder's in Englewood, New Jersey, when Paul brought the uh, case in and opened the case, the bass exploded from the change in temperature inside the studio versus outside mm-hmm. uh, in, from the freight right. bringing, bringing the instrument in. There was an old bass in the corner. Now, I remember a class where a lot of the master classes I give, there are many of different instrumentalists in, uh, that are brought into the student body to these master classes and I often say to the, the class before I get started how many guitarists are here? and a number of hands go up and then I'll say how many pianists are here? piano players? and a number of hands will... how many tenor players? how many reed instruments? Mm-hmm. and hands will go up. how many vocalists? how many percussionists? how many bassists? and hands go up And Amongst the bassists, along along those lines came the question about transcription. And I brought to their attention, you know, when you transcribe a bass solo. Let me describe to you what took place in Rudy Van Gelder's studio sometime in the '70s with Paul Chambers, when he brought his bass in from the cold, from the airport, straight from the air from landing uh, to the studio. It exploded. It was an old bass over in the corner, and it was covered with dust. They wiped it down, and that's what Paul used on that session. Now you're going to transcribe his solo, and suddenly you're under the impression that his solo has nothing to do with what he wanted, other than what he wanted to do, Mm -hmm. playing wise Mm -hmm. You were totally unaware of how difficult it was to master that strange instrument. Mm how difficult it was to keep its intonation, mm-hmm. how difficult it was for him to remain to be Paul Chambers, and your interest was only on the notes, and you thought that you knew why he chose those songs. Wow. But you didn't know why he chose those songs. He was psychologically confronted with a crisis. The show must go on, as uh-huh. the old say, uh-huh. under conditions like that. So it was second nature for him to adjust to the moment. And that to me is much more of an accomplishment than what you think you're transcribing. Mm. So these are some of the things that I think have a great deal to do with the, uh, the ability of players at that caliber. And I bet that was, I bet it was a bad my session. But... Oh, it was, it was incredible. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a great session. Yeah. You would never know yeah. that anything like that happened. Mm. And in fact, I'll be honest, it's to speak for myself, recently... Uh, I performed at um, Arturo Sandoval's in Miami, Mm -hmm. Miami Beach, and it was a U.S. Air flight here from Philadelphia down to Miami, Mm -hmm. and we departed and we arrived in Miami and had to go to, right from the airport to the sound check, to the performance that evening at 8 Mm o'clock. We arrived at 2 o'clock, the sound check was for 5 o'clock. wound up staying at the, at the airport in Miami for over, well, close to two hours to begin with. All of the instruments were not, there were no instruments there. I, I went, no clothing, no baggage, no instruments. We finally had to go to the hotel, with carrying nothing. I had to borrow a T-shirt. I wore my jeans and my sneakers. I made some phone calls and had some guitars brought in. Different students that I know in, in my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I the challenge was to perform with someone else's instrument, just like Paul had to mm-hmm. at that time. And due to the experience, I really enjoyed the challenge. And so new to did the audience because I made sure that they knew what the challenge was all about. Did you break any strings? No I didn't because I had, I made, <laughs> I made sure that I had heavy, heavy gauge straight on because that I, I would <laughs> not
0: because I, 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 read, I read that, um,
1: uh, <laughs> that you so
0: had changed that and that's a heavier gauge because sure. I mean, you just attacked it, isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah and, it's very
1: true. And, but, but I, I had heavier gains straight. I, I hadn't put as heavy as I could get on there yeah. So I wouldn't break the thing. It <laughs> was still a little bit too light. But, you know, I, I think uh, what was most of all entertaining to, to a full house that evening mm. was how it didn't make any difference. And I think there's something profound in that. Mm. That you can enjoy the moment under any condition by doing the best you can do. Well, that's it.
0: what that's what jazz is, is about. There's a lot of improvisation. Absolutely. And, and, and being able to um, negotiate agendas. With, oh, the, with the rest of the musicians, and that's that's what I feel or what I think rather makes it so great. I mean, um, hey, it's just like sitting around and just telling jokes. It's very much like <laughs> you <that>. know? Uh, <laughs> you know, and and coming to one conclusion. I mean, I was raised on jazz. I was, and subconsciously, I used to. Um, I tell this story all the time. It's a true story. My my mother and father they ran a speaking yeah, and. You know, the stereo and everything was upstairs and they did their entertainment downstairs. Mm-hmm. You know, they had the, the pool table converted into a pan <laughs> table, you know what I mean? And they had a nice big bar and my mom could burn, you know what I mean? So they had plenty of food. And I was the record guy, yeah. you know. You remember how the records used to fall one at a time? And they would say, Peyton, put on a stack of records. And the records that I would put on. Mm-hmm. Kenny Dan <laughs> Martino, like, you know, uh, Earl Garner, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, just everybody from that era, sure. and even Freddie McCourt, oh, you sure. know, Peas and Rice, you know, and so constantly, and I was a little guy, you know, and it just stuck with me, you know, and a lot of people ask me, you know, especially when I was in my 20s, when I was listening to jazz, they say, were um, you born again or something, because you listening to all this old stuff with Jazz, and you're supposed to be listening to this. You know, that's where my love of you know and jazz came from. Um, I definitely thank my parents for it because um, it's uh, everything else comes from that. Sure, you know what I mean. I so, do know what
1: you mean. Um, you know, one of the one of the biggest problems in terms of musical education nowadays is that you there are serious students and and. There's something beautiful about that, in terms of their intentions. Um, but there's, there's something that, at the same time, is very difficult to reorganize for their sake. And that is to study something that was the fruit of a culture that no longer exists. is very difficult in terms of capturing and reproducing the authenticity of what originally brought it about. Mm -hmm. I remember a time... I mean, when I left Philadelphia at the age of 15, I went to Harlem, and I worked in Small's Paradise and Count Basie's, and, of course, downtown at the Village Vanguard, uh, the Village Gate Mm -hmm. no longer exists. Vanguard still exists. And I remember how, how different it was then how different Harlem was Mm. than it is now. I see kids who are studying jazz as a form of, in a sense, intellectual. It's intellectual compared to real time. It's in set time, you know computer terms. Mm. Set time and real time are two different things. Mm. Set time in in many musical programs that use software, you get software. Set time shows your graphic grid on the screen, and you put little X's or dots, and you connect the, the dots almost like a puzzle, mm-hmm. and it will play for you exactly what you you di- you uh, place graphically design on that matrix. Mm-hmm. Whereas real time is when you plug your instrument into the computer and you play something, and it will play it back. For you. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's like it recorded you. Mm-hmm. The difference now is real time in jazz. Is a little bit different, primarily because the culture that surrounds it is quite different. And I I think it's extremely difficult to teach it. And not only that, you know, when a student graduates and comes out on the and hits the street, the street is real time. Uh, You know, graduation in any field of endeavor, whether it be the arts and whether it be music or any other form of art, is quite different than as a student you walk out of the uh, out of the. Establishment, and now you're ready and you're looking for work. I was in the taxi cab in Washington, D.C. two days ago, and there was a there was a a, a, a neurophysicist driving a cab just to make a living, right. because he can't get he couldn't get any work. Right. So that's what you're dealing with in terms of real time being a little bit different than set time. Mm. So you have graduates in one field of endeavor that no longer could get uh, a position of what they do, and they'll find that they have to adapt to the moment. That's closer to what jazz is all about right there. So, you know, what is what is jazz is really profound. There's something about it that I think goes a lot farther. A type of music that's uh, there just for entertainment. I, and it's up to the individual. I personally have, have learned and continue to learn so much from it that um, it has become it's gone a lot farther than just the music and I enjoy it as music but it's also a key into unlocking other doors of consciousness so I think
0: I think uh, a lot of people
1: uh, and
0: just from talking to a lot of people about jazz they have this misconception that it's, it's only for intellectuals um, And I try to tell them that it's really accessible music. But you just have to just have an open mind to it. A lot of people just like singing. it have to have some singing in it. But the instruments are doing the same thing. You know? I mean, how many... Sarah Vaughn.
1: Well, I mean, Sarah, Carmen McCray. Right. Ella. You know, well, Nancy, they
0: they do the same thing, did the same things with their voice. There's a lot of instruments. There. Sure, absolutely. so you know, it's really it's really accessible music, and that's that's what I do. You know, try try sure. to get two people.
1: Um, now we were talking about teaching jazz guitar. Where do you, where do you teach? I'm adjunct faculty in quite a number of universities and conservatories worldwide. Hmm. I when I'm here in Philadelphia. I enjoy visiting as one of the faculty over at the University of the Arts. I'm also functioning in New York City adjunct at New School um, I'm at the Concerto Conservatory in Amsterdam. Mm. I'm at a number of different conservatories in Italy. Um, I just did master classes uh, about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, at the Royal Academy of Music in London. So I, I'm, I have access to universities and, uh, in California. I'm adjunct at, uh, at uh, MI, Musician's Institute. I'm adjunct faculty at Berkeley in, in Boston. In fact, I have a course on the, in, in Boston at Berkeley. Um, where do I teach? I teach teach wherever I am. I have some students coming in today privately. Oh, man. Can you explain explain to me, because I I read this also, Conversion to Minor. Conversion to Minor. Of course, I can explain it to you complexly, in a complex kind of way. Um, I'd rather do it in a simplistic way. I remember when I used to work with Sonny Stitt and Gene Ammon. and I was part of the trio in back of of these two giants Mm -hmm. and in the trio were two more giants with uh, Don Patterson and Billy James Mm -hmm. and the three of us used to back up Sonny Stitt and and Gene Emmons Strings and Jug Mm -hmm. and I remember there used to be the book that we would play and every time a song would come up with minor setups, like the minor blues Mm -hmm. or Whatever had a minor seven chord in it, I was in heaven. That was my favorite, favorite chord. Whenever a major seventh came up, similar to giant steps,
3: mm-hmm.
1: nothing but major seven forms, of course there were dominant sevens in a two-five relationship, mm-hmm. so on and so forth, at that time, those chords were the enemy, the opposites.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, day and night, good and bad, up and down, man and woman, yin and yang, over and under. Mm-hmm. Uh, birth and death, major and minor. I liked minor, not major. Mm -hmm. Through all the years of experience, it's over fifty years now, I've profoundly gained access to finding a way of translating all things into what I'm good at
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and that's the minor chord. So that's the transformation into minor. I see, if I see a major 7 chord, like I used to see before as the enemy, and I would run away from it. I didn't want to know that. And that would be the most uncomfortable moment, improvisationally, of the evening. Now I see it for what it is. I see it's relative, minor, accessible, because it's there for me. It pleases me, and it gives, that gives me exactly what I'm meant to do, and what I'm good at. I've found the one thing that I'm good at, in all things. All is one and one is all. Mm -hmm. So that's what transition or the the transformation, the minor transformation is all about. Mm -hmm. Taking advantage of my blessings and and being prolific about it. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And I think anyone you know, everyone has is blessed with a certain thing that they're good at doing. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: One of the most difficult things is how is how education itself programs us into different fields of endeavor, and we study those things as opposed to ourselves and we forget how when we were so into the way we are and what we love to play with, we would be playing with our toys in our favorite kind of way, and then suddenly an adult would come over to us and say, <clears throat> stop playing and do your homework. I went back to play. Mm-hmm the way I always enjoyed play, as opposed to being so concerned with my homework. i found that the greatest thing is to be happy about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And if you can find that in other things, in everything you do, you'll be successful mm-hmm. to the max. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the types of music do you listen to? Gee, I, I listen to many different types of music. Gosh, I listen to I listen to 20th century classical music. I listen to I listen to rhythm and blues. I listen to pop. I listen to world music, Indian ragas. I listen to gee I listen to a lot of country and western music. I listen to there's times I listen to hip hop. There's I listen to a lot of different kinds of music. You know, I listen to what is taking place where i am Mm. because that's what i'm meant to be part of
3: Mm.
1: otherwise i wouldn't be there right if i walk out of my house and i and i'm taking some dry cleaning down the street to to lynn's cleaners a couple of blocks away Mm. and a car is going by and there's some really loud hip-hop in that car that's an important moment in life for me because it is my life and it's part of my life Mm -hmm. So I want to know more about it. I want to react to it. I want to feel myself in, with it. I don't want to be disturbed or distracted from something that has nothing to do with it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Primarily because that isn't realistic. I want to know more about the moment.
0: Well, wow. uh, in your opinion, why is it why is it so
1: important to keep jazz alive? Because, the, yes. because it is alive, it is alive, and it's it's not a matter of it being alive. It's a matter of it being isolated, culturally isolated at times, compared to the, to how uh, flourishing it was at different times in terms of a communicative a, a communicative device socially. At one point in the up until I would say the late 60s, going into the early 70s. Jazz was was extremely functional, socially, much more functional than it is today. That's when we had when we had Peps, and when we had the Showboat, you know, and we had other we had other rooms here in Philadelphia at that time. It's where I met it's where I met Was that's where I met the Montgomery Brothers in uh, in Peps. That's where I where I met. Uh, Rashan, that's where I met Roland Kirk, in Peps. Mm. I worked Peps with Lloyd Price's big band. Mm. And that was with Clyde Hampton, with Onze Matthews, with Curtis Fuller, with Jimmy Heath. Mm. Uh, I met a lot of people in, in Peps and, and The showboat as well, that's where I used to go listen to Train. Mm. And, you know, and Miles, and Blakey, Art Blakey and Horace Silver. I mean, these were, these were different, that was a different bag, you know. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because you just you just took one of my questions
0: right out of the box because uh, my parents <coughs> used to often tell me about the different jazz clubs like showboat. like mm-hmm. Pepsi, even in Jersey Latin Casino. Well, also um, the
1: Five Hundred Club.
0: Yeah, uh, in Jersey too. Sure. But what? I guess you partially answered. it, But what? What happened to to the enthusiasm? I mean. I know it's different. Uh, you know, you have different stages in life and, and everything else. But what?
1: Why did it lose its? I don't know. It's many reasons. Many reasons. It it lost. It it lost its significance yeah. with regards to application of it in a in a um, in a way that was going to be prosperous mm. for everybody involved in it. The cost of living has gone up um the cost of performance for performers has gone up mm. due to the cost of living in general the economy therefore players uh, just to survive on a consistent basis you no longer have the chitlin circuit like there used to be right. now now if you want to be constantly performing it's global i mean i remember a time when when uh, i used to be, we used to travel by car here in the States. We would go from city to city, from coast to coast. And that would be like with, with Jack Macduff, with Willis Jackson, with Drew Holmes, with It was the, the Oregon Trio uh, circuit. Oh. And I remember with Willis, I, we would, I would bump into Wes and other players and we would be coming in and they would be leaving. You know, we'd see them coming down the steps with a Hammond D3, one of one, like Melvin Ryan in the front and Wes in the back, holding the back up and coming down from the second floor to the first floor. Mm. And here's Wills Jackson and myself and Carl Wilson and Frank Robinson standing outside with our stuff, getting ready to take our steps up the steps. Mm. And we would embrace that moment. Well, times are different. Now, You, if you see somebody, you'll see them in the airport. Mm. You know, because you're going from one country to another, or from one state to another, and it's, it's more proficient, it's, it's more efficient rather, mm-hmm. to, to travel in terms of air flight. Uh, we, for instance, like I, recently, the last couple of months, I, we went from uh, New York City to Istanbul, from Istanbul to uh, Canary Islands off the coast of Africa. Mm-hmm. From Canary Islands, we went to Italy, three different cities in Italy, to Paris, from there to Paris, then to Amsterdam, then to London, then to Vienna, then to Stockholm, oh. then to Switzerland, and then back to New York City, and then two weeks off, then to Miami Beach. So it's constant, it's like a constant, uh, it's like a matrix of, of uh, you know, it's touring. It's not like it used to be, where where you would go from every every city on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So so,
0: I guess the over in Asia, um, Europe,
1: it's jazz itself is it's better received. Or I don't know whether 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 you could say better received. It's different. There shall never be. You know the old, so there will never be another hue. Mm-hmm. This time it's spelled H-U-E. Mm-hmm. There'll never be another hue, and and the hue that I'm referring to of the most significant value was the culture that it, it stemmed from. Mm-hmm. There'll never be another hue like that one. Mm-hmm. There'll never be another Pepsi and Schoenberg. You might go to Japan and do the the Blue Note in Tokyo. And it might be packed at standing room only, but it isn't the
3: same.
1: It isn't the same.
3: There's
1: a dressing room in, in in the back of the Blue Note in Tokyo, where that's where the band goes at the end of the performance. It's part of their culture, and you have to to participate in that way. Me and my wife walked into uh, the Blue Note, the old Blue Note in Tokyo. There's been a new one for the last couple of years. A beautiful. A, a bigger room, but the old one. Um, me and my wife just happened to walk in one night because we, I was visiting visiting her family. My wife is Japanese, and um, we walked in and Ayato, was was performing there, and uh, and we walked in and we we didn't see Ayato, you know. And suddenly, management came over and, and recognized who we were, brought us back, and the whole band was in the back dressing room. You know, that's where the band's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's not like it used to be in Peps, where you would walk into Peps or the showboat, and you would walk over to the bar and you'd be standing next to Horace you know, or Count Basie's in New York City, you know, and and you would you you'd look up on stage and and they would tear in the house down. It was like Jimmy Cobb and it was West and Melvin Ryan. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the set, they would come off stage and walk over to the bar. And you were, I mean, it was interacting, socially interacting with the art form itself. It was part of the environment. Mm-hmm. It's not like that anymore. You, as successful as it may seem in Europe, there's something missing in terms of the alienation, the cultural alienation. That is between the two different places. Even here in the states, it's not like it used to be. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, You like poetry? Yes, I do.
1: Yes, I do. Name for me a couple
0: that you really like to read.
1: Well, I'm 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 extremely traditional. I'm extremely traditional. I've listened to I've I've really enjoyed poets like like Keats. I've enjoyed Keats, I've enjoyed um, Edgar Allan Poe, I've enjoyed um, Kelly Gibran, mm. I've enjoyed traditional poets. Mm. I mean, I
0: had a professor from uh, Argentina, mm-hmm. a young lady, said, look, I want to make your show part of my class. And it to my website, you know. So I was, I was like really flattered. But, well, that's excellent. And um, and she said I want my students to understand jazz and their poetry and the importance of it. So, um, oh man, I have to I have to really uh, send you some MP3s and some of the programs I've done so you can hear. I would love to you know exactly it. I would how, really love how I do it. It's, I have a lot of fun with it. You know, and I'm really
1: like passionate about it. So um, it's easy. That's why it's such a pleasure for me it's to be invited easy. to participate in this. It's an honor. Um, but it really is. How often do you practice on the instrument? I practice on the guitar just about as much as I practice on my automobile. My automobile is has been absorbed in terms of its functional demand, mm-hmm. how it functions. The same with the guitar. The guitar functions very much like my automobile. I use it. To, um to arrive at a point a destination that is considered in terms of my intention mm-hmm. sometimes I use it for social reasons sometimes I use it for more aesthetic reasons mm-hmm. but at all times I understand it as as freely and as comfortably as I uh, do any other utility in my home it's a, it functions for me mm-hmm. you know I don't practice it like a like a student trying to learn something about it. I always enjoy it, and there's times I'll take a scenic route with it, mm-hmm. you know. But there's other times when I don't have the time, I have deadlines, and there's got to be an industrial route, mm-hmm. as uncomfortable as that can be. So, I... that's an interesting question, how long do you practice? Sometimes you know um, I'll get that question from students in, at at a class, mm-hmm. and I'll ask them, how, "How long did it take you to uh, learn how to drive? How many of you drive?" I'll, and then raise your hands. How long did it take you? How long did it take you to learn how to use the car? And uh, how long did it take? Do you practice the steering column? Mm-hmm. Do you practice the the shift? Do you practice? Do you practice the audio system in it? Mm-hmm. It changes every six months. The last six months ago, whatever you had then was obsolete compared to what's coming out now. Right. And how long does it take you to adjust and adapt to the use and the benefit mm-hmm. of upgrading your understanding of this vehicle? Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing with the, with any vehicle. And the guitar is the vehicle, mm-hmm. just like any. And I think that should be second nature to the driver, mm-hmm. to the artist that's going to use that vehicle for whatever reasons he or she intends to use it for.
0: Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the legendary musician, composer, guitarist, Mr. Pat Martino.